an attribute of the wine is somewhereness, a wine that has to have been made somewhere, not anywhere, somewhere. And I think that's the first step into defining terroir. This is a wine from a place. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz Kasky. As a travel curator, cook, wine aficionado, and design lover here in South America, I've always been fascinated by the stories of how creatives pursue their dreams. What's the energy behind a great chef and restaurant? How is that tasty cheese made? Why does this wine speak to me? What was the inspiration for that hotel? Or simply appreciating the artistry of an old world weaving with contemporary design. I am constantly searching for local flavors and am passionate about sharing them. Welcome to In Search of Flavor, a podcast that explores the experiences, ideas, and stories behind the fascinating trailblazers in the region and the beautiful projects they've birthed. So pour yourself a glass of wine, dial into your wanderlust, and get ready to be inspired. Have you ever been seduced by a Malbec? Most of us have been, right? It's such an expressive, delicious variety of wine. Well, today's guest is an icon in Argentine wine who is considered a master of Malbec and one of South America's most revered winemakers. Santiago Achaval got bit by the wine bug while at Stanford Business School, which later led him to found his first winery, Achaval Ferrer, when he returned to Argentina. His single vineyard, Malbecs, reached global claims, scoring nearly 100 points by top wine publications. After selling Achaval Ferrer, Santiago is now dedicated to his current winery, Mazzarvini in Mendoza and the farm winery in Paso Robles, California. This is a man who is dedicated to showcasing the potential and terroir of Malbec in Argentina. He's made it his life's work. Guys, pour yourself a glass of your favorite Malbec and come cozy up to listen about Santiago's fascinating journey deep into wine. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Liz. This is an honor. I think we met Many years ago, when Achaval Ferrer was a little tiny, wasn't a baby, but it was a small child. (laughs) (laughs) It was young. It was young. (laughs) Certainly, I guess a lot of our listeners and guests who have been to Mendoza got to know your wines through that project first. So I think this is kind of like a good segue into, you know, opening. Tell me about you. I mean, like, how did... Let's start there and then kind of work backwards how you arrived to wine because you ha- you're like a multi-hyphenate, I feel like, that you have so many well, <laughs> passions and interests and they converged. <laughs> it was not obvious initially. Uh, so uh, my de- first degree was in accounting. And then I, I took a second degree in business. Uh, I took an MBA in the U.S. But you have to understand my family is not in the wine business. I was raised in Cordoba. In Argentina and Cordoba is not wine country, not even close. And our parent dad did not allow us to even drink a little sip before I turned illegal at 18 in Argentina. We're lucky it's 18. So I arrived in in, um, in, in Silicon Valley, close to San Francisco, in Stanford, more exactly. And wine was not a thing for me. I was 26 years old and wine was not relevant in my life. But you know what happens on the weekends eh, when you're close to Napa Valley, you designate a driver, you go uh, drinking with friends, and then your uh, in-laws come around and you take them. Uh, of course, one of the circuits is Napa and Sonoma. The other one is Monterey and Carmel. And slowly but surely, I caught the bug. You know, some people say they've fallen in love with wine. At least for me, it was not that it was a virus. It was a contagion. <laughs> and uh, I found myself enjoying the vineyards and the cellars 
even more than the tasting rooms and starting to read about wine. And at the same time, I was taking classes in the business school. And these teachers were telling me something that for a guy who was got his education in Argentina was completely new. So these guys were telling me that you can dream and change in the middle of your life and find a passion and just do over and start again in something you really love. And even though it wasn't the middle of my life, I said, aha, so I can change. And by second year, as I had said to myself and to some friends, this is what I want to do. I want to be in somehow, sometime, I want to be in wine. I want to own a small winery. I want to make a great wines. And I said that to myself when I was 27. And then what I did, I was a bit, I kicked it as far ahead as I could and still be serious. I said, before I'm 45, I will own a winery. That was the next century. So it was very far away. But the purpose was there. And when I came back to Argentina, I had to work for the company who uh, paid for the MBA. But I was constantly reading about wine, buying wines, uh, getting uh, an online, not online, I'd say uh, an education about wine without attending any classes about wine. That was uh, the slow story about how that purpose became firmer and the idea of doing it became firmer. And a few years later, uh, we founded Atau Al-Farad with a group of friends. So could you describe at that time when you came back from the U.S. in business school to Argentina, what was the lay of the land? Because that was in the 80s or, or early 90s. So it was a very different landscape in wine, right? <laughs> Well, it was July of 89, which has the, the very sad privilege uh, of being the highest inflation ever in Argentina, the monthly inflation rate. Just to give you an idea, the monthly inflation rate was 300%. We were in hyperinflation. Uh, the wine industry was, uh, to the best of my knowledge, just surviving with uh, internal markets, domestic market. There were... Uh, very few exporting wineries, maybe Trapiche, uh, Catena was just starting to, uh, just to give an idea, in 89 was the year that both Michel Roland and Paul Hobbs landed in Argentina, were the first international consultants to come here and to explore the potential for a world-class wine. It was a industry that was very much tied to its to old old habits and old production methods and old viticultural methods. Wines were, I think, tired and oxidized would be a, a harsh descriptor, but not a bad one, not a not completely wrong one. And since then, it's been a, a revolution, leaded by the Echard in the north in Salta, Arnaldo Echard, who hired Michel Roland, leaded by Catena, Nicolas Catena, who hired Paul Hobbs, and uh, then uh, a few, uh, very little time later, Antonini came in from Italy. And in 95, we brought in Roberto Cipresso, also from Italy, to advise us in, in, in this new adventure. So what you were in that moment of being back in Argentina, sort of surveying what your move could be into this industry and sort of like, what were you, you know, how did you see this opportunity to jump in to create 
a boutique winery, which at that time was something that was not super common. And you, you know, bought a very small plot of land that had very old Malbec vines. So it was really, I mean, you were, Acheval Ferrer was a bit of a disruptor for what Argentina was in in that moment. Uh, I think we were disruptors in, in several aspects. One of them was uh, concentrating only on the high end. Most uh, Argentina wineries were doing the, a very classical uh, product pyramid with uh, most of the volume, 90% of the volume, and low-priced wines, everyday wines, and then a few cases of uh, higher-priced wines. We decided to focus only on the high end. We wanted to make wines that would make us proud. We wanted to make wines that are expressive of their terroir. And we knew that we're always going to be small, so we would never have the economies of scale to try to sell into the everyday low-priced tier of wines. So we decided to build our reputation. I would say a top-down strategy would be the best description instead of a bottoms-up strategy. With the first wines we produced were our single vineyard Malbecs, old vine, low production, so that was would be the first disruption. The second one, I think, was in the vineyards. Viticulturally, we were the first ones to start dropping fruit. Normally, uh, old vines had low, natural low production. We would go in and say, doesn't matter. We want one bunch per shoot instead of two bunches. And uh, the, uh, the producers would say, you are crazy. And they would look at us. Uh, uh, like we were throwing fruit on the ground and they couldn't conceive of that happening. And uh, it's like there was a divorce in Mendoza. On one hand, you had all the fruit producers, orchards, apples, peaches, and which dropping fruit was a very standard practice. You know, if you may produce peaches, uh, you allow the peach tree to uh, load up all it can, all it, all the fruit set you'll have a, a enormous amount of very small small peaches, non-commercial peaches, the same with apples. So what the fruit producers do, they drop two-thirds of the production as soon as they have a fruit set. And therefore, the, the, the tree responds by making bigger peaches, bigger apples. In uh, grape growing, the people would not even think about it. They wanted to have as much as they could, and wineries would pay by the ton, no matter if it was high yield and low yield. And so we were disruptors on the viticultural front, too. One of the things that I think that, you know, Acheval Ferrer, what really sort of reset in people's minds in the markets abroad was that the origin of Malbec and that Malbec was capable of really expressing these unique vineyards, which was something that that I felt had not been explored the way it is today. That in, in Mendoza, that you know, single vineyards are a thing that almost every everybody searches for. But I felt that you know, Alchevel Ferrer sort of pushed. It became a cult winery because one being you know you were small, but also like really pioneering this concept of what is the terroir behind a Malbec and something that was like completely new for a lot of drinkers. So, I mean, what chord do you think that that struck among the wine crowd when, because I mean, it was the first Malbec that almost got a hundred points from Robert Parker. I mean, it clearly struck a chord of something that didn't exist before. You know, what, what were people looking for? Well, first I have to say that it wasn't in our plans either in the sense that we uh, all our blueprints was we were going to have two wines and two wines only one was going to be a bordeaux blend 
And the other one is going to be a Rhone blend, and uh, it would be a, a two-wine winery, very much in, in, some, uh, in the Bordeaux model uh, or in the European model. And we landed in Mendoza and started driving around and looking at vineyards. And this was March of 1999. And we kind of crashed into Old Vine Malbec. We just were driving around like consulta and looking for more land to plant. And we just happened to drive by a, a very old vineyard, unkempt, untidy. It was a mess. And uh, we uh, looked at it and laughed at it. And then Roberto, who was with me, Roberto Cipresso, he came back the following day and tasted the fruit. And uh, that's when all our plans changed because the quality of that fruit was so awesome and so intense and so unique. So it, it wasn't a fruit that you would say, this is a typical Malbec. This was fruit that was more following its own path. And we said, okay, this is a Malbec that speaks of its land. And we bought the vineyard and we harvested the fruit uh, two days later. And uh, uh, we made a 1999 Finca Altamira and uh, just tasting the wines fresh out of fermentation tanks. Just uh, the wine was just in barrel when we went to Vinitaly that same year with samples. And and we we had people, uh, winemakers and journalists taste this. And they said, this is different. And we agreed this is different. We uh, And then we th- thought, OK, there's one vineyard, at least in Mendoza, that can transmit the signature of the land, the character, the personality of the land. It can't be a, a happenstance. It ha- there has to be another one there or many other ones. And that's when we started looking for the, the other single vineyards. And we found Finca Mirador. And then we found Finca Bella Vista. And then we had a trio of single vineyard Malbecs. And even then, I had to uh, several discussions within the winery uh, that uh, uh, because some of my partners were not convinced that showcasing three wines at the same price point at the same quality level and but different wines was a good strategy and i said look at burgundy look at uh, look at uh, all the wines throughout the world once you find a terroir this potent you have to make the wine there's there's no choice once you find a vineyard like this you have to make a wine from it and uh, that's how the concept was we started going around and tasting people on these wines the concept was not new. It, it was new to Argentina, but not new to the wine world. So in the U.S., it was fantastically well-received. And it was, these wines were immediately very uh, popular. Not popular. They were expensive wines, but they, were, they garnered a, a following. So when, we're ta- when you were talking about terroir, because, I mean, I feel that that's one of what always in your wines is so clear, they're terroir wines. Maybe we can dive into this because not everybody, I feel that a lot of people don't understand, like, what is a terroir wine? How do you know when a wine is speaking to you? And if you're a wine whisperer in the sense of like, how do you know when you're standing on this piece of land and you know it has something different? Like, what does that look like? Are you, you know, tasting the fruit and imagining, extrapolating? What is this wine going to, what is its personality? How is this going to emerge? Like, I mean, because that's a talent that not everybody perhaps has that experience nor vision to sort of take that dream and turn it into this final product that's able to transmit. It's a piece of art, basically. I would say it takes some experience. And uh, I was lucky, and we were lucky to to have Roberto with us. It helps a lot if you're doing it in March, which is our harvest, and then you can taste the grapes 
and tasting the grapes, you get a lot of information, a lot, a lot of information. Initially, at that point, I was not the one to make the call because that was my, uh, I had been tasting grapes since 95 when we started uh, thinking about this and we were, uh, did a couple of trips in wine country uh, with the partners, but Roberto was the one who made the call. And as the years went by, I acquired that ability. It's, it is experience, it is passion, and it's a profound interest in the land that uh, allows you to build uh, this feeling for, for the special places that are, that are here and there. And the, this, even the concept of terroir is still, I would say, not entirely accepted by everybody. A few years ago, uh, and a, a very famous winemaker said, uh, there's no such thing as minerality in a wine in the sense that the vine does not have the ability to take these uh, substances from the soil. And uh, the, to that, I respond, uh, uh, there was a very famous case in the U.S. Supreme Court back uh, in the 60s, I think. And uh, it was, uh, this sounds that has, it's, it's irrelevant, but it's, the case was around pornography. And the, the whole case of uh, the defendants was first uh, the free speech. They, they were arguing it was free speech. And then the state was trying to make the case for obscenity. And one of the, uh, the Supreme Court judges said, I cannot define obscenity, but I recognize it when I see it. And that's the way I think everybody should approach terroir is you, you don't need to define it. You taste it in a wine. And there are wines that are clearly made in one specific place. There, there are wines that are clearly could not have been made anywhere. At the same time, there are wines that you can say this is a Cabernet Sauvignon that could have been made anywhere, but there's some wines that are uniquely from some place. And I think it was uh, Matt Kramer, uh, an American journalist, who coined the the word somewhereness. An attribute of the wine is somewhereness. A wine that has to have been made somewhere, not anywhere, somewhere. And I think that's the first step into defining terroir. This is a wine from a place. I don't recognize the place. I don't pinpoint the place, but I do recognize as a consumer that this is one place and one place only. And do you think the average consumer, when they open a bottle of wine, I mean, independent if it's your wine now, Matervini or, you know, Atavalfred, do you think they're able to pick up those clues? Because, I mean, there's a deliciousness in fine wine that's real, but... There's also, I feel like, an educational component to that appreciation of terroir, just like the way you would study opera or classical music or anything like that. Well, you know, one of the things I found uh, uh, repeatedly, and it's one of the things we do in Mardarvini, we visitor sits down and we give him uh, five wine glasses with five Malbecs from different places. And if that consumer were tasting only one of those wines, Maybe he would not identify it as uh, those terroir components, but they clearly jump out of the glass when you compare one with the other. What the average consumer may not have is the memories of other wines to compare this wine to. He doesn't have the database, but he does have the palate. Or the natural palate is the human natural palate is able to distinguish these wines from each other. It's the same variety. They were made in the same fashion. They were aged in the same barrels for the same length of time. And these are different wines. And it clearly, 
if you have to use your memory, you may not recognize that. But once you have one next to the other or five next to one another, then you do recognize the difference in the wines. And it clearly jumps out of the glass that this uh, difference is driven by location. As you know, the, as the realtors say in the U.S., it's the, the three most important things in, in single vineyards is location, location, location. It's a marvel to look at the faces of people that uh, deprecate their own abilities and suddenly they, they have to accept that they do recognize the differences among these wines. So Matt Dervini, just to shift gears into your current project, which we got to know in, in January, I mean, it was really mind-blowing for me exactly in what you were saying, this comparison of side-by-side, side, all these different terroirs from Salta, Uco Valley, and from, you know, the Luján de Cuyo area of Mendoza. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this new project and, like, what is your why behind, what are you guys exploring in this new new phase? Because this is like a new chapter for you. It is a new chapter. and. I think it's once uh, we sold a Chao Ferrer, uh, I had a, an occasion, uh, like, what do I do the rest of my life? And I said, do I play guitar for the rest <laughs> of my life? Uh, and I, I could have. <laughs> I could have. I, uh, I play classical guitar, and it requires many hours uh, per day if you want to be good. But the answer to myself and to my family was there, there are many questions unanswered, many vineyards unexplored. And one of the most intriguing questions we had back then was most of, if not every single vineyard in Mendoza is planted on alluvial soils. Alluvial means a very good structure in the soil because of the drainage, but it also means mixed up. The geology is mixed up because these rocks have come down the mountain with the rivers or the glaciers, and it, it's all mixed up. Slate with granite and with uh, limestone with schists. Um, so uh, the question was, how does Malbec react in non-alluvial soils, in original soils, soils that have been formed in place through the eons without mixing up with other kind of rocks? And uh, we had uh, started thinking about that in Salta on, on a field trip to Salta, and in July 2002, and it was in our minds, we had already bought a, a vineyard in Piedras Viejas in Las Heras, 1,600 meters, 5,200 feet above sea level, and we uh, were planting on the slopes. You know, that the slopes are the places you find original soils. It's they, Those are rocks that have not moved, and they have broken down into, into soil. And so that was the question Maravini was predicated upon. That was, that's a founding question and the driving question of Maravini. Comparison between original soils and how an original soil has more capacity of, of imparting character into a wine than an alluvial soil. And uh, the ability to sit down and with, uh, as, as you did in January with these glasses and, and ping pong back and forth between alluvial, for example, Finca, which is Pedriel, and Canota, which is north of Mendoza and, and on original non-alluvial non soils and, and find the differences in minerality and find the differences in structure and character and personality. That's what's driving uh, Maravini. That's, uh, that's a reason to start Maravini. That's a reason to look for new places and new vineyards and new land and plant where nobody has planted before. And you're doing a, as sort of a parenthesis within that, a white wine now too. You're Blanco, right? 
We're doing a white wine because uh, Malbec is a philosophy and a passion. It's not a religion. Uh, so we're, we're allowed a, a distraction. <laughs> and as I, I tell my friends, in religion, distractions are sins. You're not allowed to have them. But in, <laughs> uh, but in wine, there's always a very hot afternoon. And there's always a friend who brought seafood. Uh, I have a, a dear friend in Mendoza who brings oysters from Chile, raw oysters. So there's, there's a location and there's a place and a time for a white wine. And we just try to make a different white wine, which is thinking of the skins, not only of the juice, and thinking of the tannin structure and the minerality and dropping fruit and a leaf in the fruit zone and allowing sun on the bunches and then uh, cold soaking this, these skins for five or seven days. And it's a Rhone blend. Uh, a blend of Roussan, Marsan, and Viognier. That's a nice parenthesis with the the Malbec that are they're very concentrated and intense. Yes, it is. You've been and I, I like this that you you've sort of asserted that Malbec is not only the past and present of Argentina, but it's also the future. And one of the things that really caught my attention on our recent trip there was there's a lot of young winemakers right now that are really trying to experiment with lots of different varietals and show that Argentina is not Malbec. So how would you answer to that? I mean, where how does Malbec sort of fit into this next modern phase of of wine for Argentina, you know, and 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 how do wine drinkers I don't know, like connect with these kinds of, you know, I feel like your wines are in such a special category within what Argentine wines are. They're like they're like an art form for me at least. And so like how do we Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. How do you navigate this new wave of Argentine wine? Because I think gears have shifted there a little bit, you know, in the last five years. Well, what I'd say is first, the new generation of winemakers, they're doing fantastic things. And as every uh, new generation coming on the scene, they're experimenting and they're uh, changing what they were, they learned in, in school and taking it to moving the edge, moving the envelope. So it's very healthy for Argentina. And the, the wines they're making, some of them are, are mistakes, and, but many of them are fantastic. So I applaud the, the innovation. I applaud the investigation. But I, I need to tell you where I've been making Cabernet Sauvignon since uh, 2000 in Mendoza. And Cabernet Franc since uh, 2003. Merlot since 2000. And I've uh, played around with Petit Verdot and uh, we experimented on Italian varietals and Bonarda and Sangiovese. And every time I made a Cabernet Sauvignon, which is many, many years, I put everything into that vineyard and into that winemaking. And every single year, our Malbecs were better than the Cabernet Sauvignon. And our Malbecs were better than the, the Cabernet Franc. And for example, in Merlot, you find that the expressiveness of Merlot and Uca Valley is fantastic. And outside of Uca Valley, not so much. And Cabernet Sauvignon needs uh, certain degrees of heat to be expressive. So the higher regions are not so, so expressive. Malbec does well everywhere. So not only our best wines every year have been Malbec, our best wines in every place have been Malbec. Uh, Malbec does fantastically well from Patagonia to Jujuy, from 400 meters above sea level to 3,000 meters above sea level. And that plasticity, that adaptability of Malbec is the reason why I think it is the future also of Argentina. Because uh, in every terroir, in every elevation, it shines and it makes the best wines. And 
I agree that Argentina can make many, many things and it should make many varieties of wine and it should have a fantastic world-class Cabernet Franc and a, a quaffable uh, Bonarda for everyday, everyday drinking and uh, majestic Chardonnay. But a small winery like Matarvini has to have a focus and the quality and the plasticity and the adaptability and the ability to express terroir of Malbec doesn't have a rival uh, in Argentina. That's why Malbec is it for us. Okay. And so when you're, I mean, just to shift gears a little bit to you started a project, the farm winery in the States, which is in Paso Robles and is a very different story in terms of the types of wines, the styles, the climate, um, everything. Maybe you could, you could we can talk about that a little bit because that's also an, an exploration that's new and different. <laughs> it is. I wouldn't say I started the, the project. I have a, two very dear friends from business school time back in, we became friends in, back in 87. It's uh, Jim and Asmina Madsen. And they, we became so close, then I became the godfather of their daughter. And we kept up this friendship throughout the years. And in 2008, they decided to buy property in Paso Robles. They live in San Diego. Uh, Jim is a pilot. He has a small plane. And their three kids had uh, gone to a school in the Bay Area and were uh, now living in the Bay Area. And so they, they decided to buy property in Paso Robles as a family legacy, as a, as a gathering place, as a congregation place for their family. And I think a few hours after deciding to buy property, Asmina decided uh, to start a winery and suggested that we start a winery. And they called me and uh, I said yes. So that's how the farm winery started uh, by invitation of, uh, of my friends. And it started with the idea of making it ourselves. My wife, uh, myself, Asmina and Jim. Jim's sons and daughter, when they are around uh, on weekends, they also help. We have uh, good friends that uh, still help us along some weekends, but it's the labor of our hands and uh, our backs and our feet. And uh, we're uh, showcasing the, the best uh, that Paso Robles has to give on the hilly, limestone, oak-studded, uh, deer-traveled uh, slopes of Paso Robles. And what are the varietals there? just to share with everybody. We found some fantastic Cabernet Sauvignon vineyards, and therefore uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is the majority of our production. But we also make very, very nice Rome blends, different proportions of Grenache and Syrah. So we have like a Rhone side and a Bordeaux side. And we think varieties from both areas uh, do very well in Paso Robles. And we showcase how both do uh, very well on limestone and how the limestone brings up the acidity and the finesse of uh, these wines. And so how has, I mean, this is always to me curious when, you know, you have like this concept of flying winemakers that you're able to, you know, use your experience in Argentina and, you know, take it to a completely other geographic region of the world. What did you discover in making wines in another place, you know, that stylistically you're looking for something because it's you know everything else is different but your your process creative process of how you approach a wine how you have it in mind what you're looking for all of those decisions comes from i always feel there's some there's some there's a style behind it 
Well, you know, I think uh, it helps to have more questions than answers when you arrive to a new place. And it helps to uh, really, I have a macro direction. Uh, for example, we all, I've always thought that a less is more and lower productions per plant and per acre result in wines of more intensity and more expressive ability. But how do you get to less is something that in Paso Robles, I talked a lot with the producers, the, the vine growers, the grape growers. And I, I was always telling them, well, in Mendoza, I'm doing this. What do you think is appropriate to do in Paso Robles to get to this goal? How would you go about it? How would your plants respond to this or that? Because uh, we've seen in, in Mendoza, uh, some foreigners come in with a recipe and uh, the recipe uh, without contemplation to local realities fails, is, is not successful. So in Paso Robles, I came with, with a very big goal of making expressive wines, wines of terroir. But I, a lot of the small stuff we argued and talked about with the growers and learned about the ter Paso terroir from, from the growers. This is sort of not related to perhaps the winemaking side, but, you know, you do have a background, an MBA, you were an accountant. Do you feel like, you know, as part of this creative journey, your business acumen has been fundamental in these years of like going through the business side, just so we can touch on that a little bit? Because I think it's interesting for people, you know, when you're creative, your life is so intertwined with your passion and your purpose. But then there's also, you know, it's a business. You have to turn a profit on this. Definitely, it helps to be able to talk with the tax people and with the lawyers and the accountants and uh, be able to not only understand what they're saying, but also to put them on, on, on the right path towards what we are trying to achieve. It does help a lot. It helps. It, it did help a lot to know that my passion made also made business sense at the same time. Uh, the decision, for example, to make high-end wines and because of the low production mean you have to be in a niche and you can, don't have economies of scale. The whole understanding about how markets work, it definitely was uh, very, very helpful. I don't know what would have happened if there had been a conflict between my uh, impulse to make uh, great wines and the business sense of it. <laughs> Uh, I may have gone down the road of making the wines anyway, but it, I was fortunate that it, it made business sense at the same time it made wine sense. But you know, definitely it, it helps a lot to have a background in business. It helps to know the ins and outs of finance and capital structures and markets and accounting and taxes. I would say to anybody who's going to be an entrepreneur, you need you need to have the basics of those of those disciplines. You need to know enough to talk to the professionals, uh, maybe not be a professional, but you need to know enough to talk to the professionals and understand and be at their level. What was a setback or a challenge that within this trajectory that you've had over the last 30 years, I mean, was like one of those defining moments that you either continue and, you know, this, everything changes or it's like a crossroads. I think everybody comes to them and, and businesses. What would be, would you be willing to share what that looked like for, for everybody to, to see how you went through that? There were a couple of business events. You know, there was a, we, we're in the middle, we're in the middle of one right now. 
for example, with uh, COVID-19 uh, and the, the, the disappearance of the wine tourism, there's nobody flying around and visiting wineries anymore. And how do you uh, reconfigure your sales and change the model? And will it be permanent? Will it not be permanent? Uh, we are in the middle of, of a classical black swan event mm-hmm. in which it, it, couldn't, it was not predicted. Uh, we don't know how it will develop. It has changed the fundamentals of some wineries like, like ours, which was devoted to direct-to-consumer strategy and talking directly to the visitor and hospitality and tasting room experiences. So uh, this is one of them, and I wish I knew the outcome of this. And uh, I believe we will come back from this. I believe the impulse to travel is in the genes of the human being, and the wine tourists will come back. But uh, I can't answer when that will be. And uh, uh, this is a big conundrum, and uh, we are trying to sell more on the traditional channels. Uh, We're trying to sell more uh, online and uh, making events and Instagram Live and podcasts like (laughs) this one and inviting people to to visit us online and trying to deliver us direct to consumer in their homes. So we're trying a lot of things to adapt, to adapt to the new realities. And this is one of them. Back in 2008, 2009, we also had a huge crisis, and we we adapted to that too. I would say there's even um, projects like uh, we have one very, very, very special vineyard uh, called Piedras Viejas. It makes our best wine, most like, most expensive wine, highest ratings of all the wines. Uh, but this vineyard we planted in 2008, and it didn't give us a single grape until 2013. And that was five, six years without any production and setbacks and diebacks. And and uh, uh, every year we had to decide, are we continuing with this vineyard? Are we continuing to invest money and replanting and, and find ways around nature's worst attacks? And we decided to... and. You know, uh, some back then, some friends were saying, you are too headstrong. And I said, uh, I, I was telling the difference between being headstrong and being a visionary. You only know that difference once you succeeded or failed <laughs> completely. And I was not willing to declare myself a failure with only five or six years in, in the vineyard. And ultimately, we did have some grapes and we did have some make some wine and we uh, backed uh we doubled down on, on the bet, and we are making Piedras Viejas, which was, it was a temptation along the years. We had no production to just give up. So sometimes the answer is double down. Sometimes the answer is a strategic retreat. And the problem is you never know ex ante. You never know going in. And you have to trust your gut, uh, trust your instinct, uh, have the support of your family and your loved ones. And sometimes you go for it. And this is what we're doing with Madarvini now. We're going for it. We think uh, hospitality will be back. And we think uh, next year we'll be welcoming everybody in the tasting room. We hope so. Because, yeah, it's been an adjustment period for everyone right now. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell people a little bit how to find Madarvini? Because you use a, besides visiting in Mendoza, you have a system that's more common in the States in Napa that you can, I believe, a, a wine club. Is that correct? Yes, uh, we have a wine club, and 
We have a, a wine in the U.S. distributed to the wine club members. And uh, you just can go, uh, you can send us an email through the website, through the contact in the website, and you can do that. You can go into the website and click on join. You can write an email to wineclub at com. Any of those ways, good for to signing up for the, to the wine club. And we have, one of the things I hate about wine clubs is sometimes you get, it's a closed deal. You take the whole package and nothing else. You cannot customize. And Jim uh, Madsen at the farm was the guy who taught me, listen, Santiago, it's a pain uh, in the neck to customize every single wine club. But uh, our the wine club members of the farm love the ability to say, okay, I know you're proposing X, Y, Z wines, but you know I want all of the wines to be X because I'm in love with Cardinal, for example, is one of the wines from the farm. It's, a, it's one of the Cabernet Sauvignons. And the ability for them to choose makes them stay in the wine club long term. And as I said, that's what Maravina is doing too. Uh, the, we have a wine club that is customizable. We Every six months, we propose a shipping, and then our customers, our members, uh, may accept it or may customize their shipping. So, and, and it can be shipped anywhere in the in the United States, Canada, or where, what are the limitations there? No, not Canada. Canada has a whole. Canada is like a five or six different countries in one, <laughs> and it's, it's very very difficult. To my Canadian friends, I tell them, "Do you have a friend in the U.S. <laughs> uh, yeah, that you can set as a as a the receiving end for the wine club, some place you visit at least once a year and." A friend you trust a lot to not open into that case, but <laughs> the same as as my friends in, in especially in northern Mexico, I tell them you must know somebody in the U.S. and then they designate a, an address in the U.S. and they receive their wine club uh, in a U.S. address. Yeah, we ship th- throughout the U.S. Okay, perfect. So the last question I have for you is: if you could give advice to your younger self, just starting out thirty odd years ago, what would be two or three? truths that you've learned in this like trajectory of that that you sh- that would have helped you perhaps to know as you navigate this purposeful path that you embark on yeah uh, one of the things uh my friend jim has told me santiago you've never met a vineyard that you did not want to make wine from which may be an exaggeration but i would say i would tell my younger self is be cautious, be a bit more cautious. I've stumbled into the future many times. I sometimes, a bit joking and a bit seriously say, uh, half of, half of progress is, is falling forwards and then raising one of your feet. And, and then you've, you've taken a step. But, uh, I would caution my younger self to be a bit more cautious and, and don't rush so quickly keep some money in the bank for a black swan event like like <laughs> this one but looking back i would do mostly what uh, what i've done in in terms of the wineries uh, we've started in terms of the vineyards we we chose i've been very very lucky it's i always um, this is i think it's a chinese proverb that says it's good to be smart, but it's better to be lucky. I've been very lucky in my life. I've been lucky in my family. I've been lucky in my friends. And uh, through that luck in family and friends, I've been lucky in my ventures. So 
I would say also to my younger self, do trust your instinct and dare to dream and uh, keep your aims high. Keep your aim high. Keep your north. Keep your goals firm. Sometimes in life you do sweat and sometimes in life you do suffer, but there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Thanks again to Santiago for joining us on the In Search of Flavor podcast. Guys, if you want to learn more about his delicious wines and what he does, you can go to www.matervini, that's M-A-T-E-R-V-I-N-I.com. You can also follow Matervini on Instagram with the handle at Matervini. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, family member, coworker, or whoever could use some wonderlust in their life right now. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. They're tremendously helpful and we greatly appreciate it. For more inspiration and information on how to come travel with us in South America or bring South America into your home, visit our website at www.lizkaski.com and follow us on Instagram at LCCWE. See you guys next week. Hasta la próxima.